Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Kimberly St. Julian Barnon. And today I am speaking to Dr. Lynn Viola about her new book, Stalinist Perpetrators on Trial, Scenes from the Great Terror in Soviet Ukraine. Lynn, thank you for being on the podcast. You're very welcome. So I wanted to start off the interview with a little bit of an introduction about you. Um, So Dr. Viola is university professor and professor of history at the University of Toronto. Lynn, could you tell us about yourself? Sure. I've I've been in this business for quite some time. I studied Russian history as an undergraduate uh, at Columbia University, Barnard College. And then I went to Princeton to do my PhD in Russian history. Um, I started with a great interest in the peasantry. And so I did a lot of work on collectivization. But more recently, uh, I became interested in the question of perpetrators. Um, And, um, you know, it struck me as interesting uh, and revealing that in Russian history, we had never studied perpetrators. Um, Unlike, let us say, um, the history of the Holocaust, where perpetrators is virtual field within a field, let us say. Um, And I think the bias simply was that all attention or most attention was on Stalin. Um, And so I had this interest in perpetrators. And originally I thought, I'm going to look at three, let us say, theaters of operation. I will look at collectivization, um, decolocization and the Holodomor, um, as one theater for perpetrators. Then I look at the gulag, where there's a lot of data that's available. And then my third idea was that I would look at the interrogation room. Now, of course, when I started this about 10 years ago, it was virtually impossible to get any information on what actually happened uh, in the interrogation room, in the execution chambers. Um, and so it was a bit of bravado on my part for trying to sell the project in this way. But fortunately, um, the archives in Kiev became open, including the archive of the SBU, formerly the KGB archive. Um, And that allowed me to, in a sense, get into the topic of the great terror by looking at perpetrators. Um, And so my basic uh, source and became the main stage. In other words, I dropped the other two theaters for op, um, for perpetrators and decided I would look at the Great Terror. And so this is a book that is as much about perpetrators as it is about the Great Terror. Interesting. And so when you found that the 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 sources were finally open in Kiev, so what did you find when you started digging into those? Um, well, I went with a colleague of mine, uh, Mark Jung, a German scholar, who had done a lot of work on the Great Terror. 
And we decided to collaborate so that not only were we each writing monographs on the topic, but we were doing um, a uh, archival document publication as well, which I can talk about a little bit later. Um, and what we uh, focused on were the criminal files of a series of NKVD or secret police uh, operatives at the end of the Great Terror or the mass operations in November 1938, Stalin called a halt to the mass operations. And this was accompanied by a scapegoating of certain members of the NKVD um, on all regional levels, from the center uh, to the republic levels, down to the town levels. Um, and each of these uh, arrested individuals or groups had a criminal file. And some of these criminal files were six to 12 volumes long, and each of the volume having, you know, four or 500 pages worth. So they were very extensive, and they were very rich. And they literally allowed us to get into the mindset of the perpetrator, as well as to look at what actually happened on a variety of different regional levels, um, ranging from uh, purge activities in an industrial city uh, to purge activities in the countryside. Um, along with this source, uh, we also had access to NKVD Communist Party meetings, uh, which proved very revealing after Stalin called a halt to the Great Terror. Um, because he also green-lighted open discussion. And so there was a great deal of discussion at these uh, party meetings, um, not only about the Great Terror itself, looking back at what happened, uh, but about NKVD complaints. So, you know, as much as we know the tragedy of the Great Terror and how victims suffered, uh, some members of the NKVD were very interested in sharing their own suffering. So along with, with this entree into the Great Terror, we hear about the everyday lives of the NKVD in the course of the terror, uh, their working conditions, uh, their, their around-the-clock uh, need to, to, to be at work. Uh, they complained that they were constantly being transferred, that it was, in fact, worse than serfdom, as one person put it. Uh, and in fact, they were transferred quite a bit. So uh, housing was never adequate. Uh, food was not adequate. So that is, uh, you know, a sort of side subject that I will continue to work on. Um, but the main topic really uh, was in these criminal files. And those files contained a vast array of document types. So we see uh, the interrogation protocols um, verbatim of these now arrested NKVD operatives. Um, and these, these interrogations can go on for months. Um, and of course, always at nighttime, we see the interrogation of expert witnesses, and those could include uh, their colleagues. It could include the people who jailed the, vic the real victims of the Great Terror. Um, it could include the washerwoman who cleaned down the bloody floors after the execution. So we see lots of, of reporting from a variety of sources. 
sometimes the doctors who treated victims are called in and they give testimony about the particular NKVD operative uh, under investigation. Um, in, in one case, we see uh, an autopsy report of a victim. Um, in general, we see inventories of the property that these perpetrators had, and that gives you a sense of you know, what they had. Uh, but also what they were taking at times. Um, so this wide range of document types um, climaxes really in the stenographic reports of the trials. Uh, these perpetrators were put on trial. Mostly these were secret trials, but some uh, were publicized. Um, and they basically deny that they did anything wrong. Um, they argue with the procurator, they argue with their interrogators, um, and they basically argue quite correctly that they were following orders. Now, however much they were following orders, which is true, they also uh, applied their own creativity to their work in the form of you know, hideous types of torture at times and all sorts of violations, particularly in the execution room. And so you have these experiences of the interrogators. So in a way, the shoes on the other foot, they are now the people being interrogated in these rooms. And so do a lot of these men who are now being turned into the criminal focus, are they being treated like their victims during the Great Terror? Well, yes and no. And that's a, that's a really good question. You know, on the one hand, they become sort of victims. I, I hate to use that word mm -hmm. because... Um, of who we're talking about. Um, but at the same time, uh, many of them later complain that they were tortured. And they'll say things like, well, if, 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 they had, if I had tortured people the way they tortured me, I would have finished my work sooner. Now, it's interesting because the use of torture then of course immediately raises doubt doubt about the words of these people who give testimony under torture. But what we see is that in these, in these uh, interrogations, when torture is being used, you usually find out about it. That is, the perpetrator will say in a later interrogation, I gave all of that information under torture, and I now, um, and I, and I now uh, no longer recognize that testimony. And so they'll change their testimony. And so if you go back to the interrogations when they were under, uh, under which were under force, um, you see that the interrogations are very black and white. The answers are monosyllabic. Generally, yes, no, yes, no. Um, so it's kind of an interesting contrast. Um, one gets the sense that they were allowed to, um, to make their statements. And this is particularly the case uh, during the trials. Um, during the trials, um, people argue uh, vociferously uh, with the procurator um, and, uh, and deny all sorts of things and bring up all sorts of possibilities, like their colleagues were out to get them, uh, or, you know, there were, were petty sort of quarrels going on, or such and such a person did the same thing but wasn't caught. Um, so they have a lot more room to play. And, of course, they know what the, the nature of the game is. 
uh, they know that they need to to avoid signing a false statement if they can. When you're looking at the trials, so are these trials similar to the show trials we saw in 1937, or are these different from those? They're very different. These are not show trials. Um, the show trials generally have sort of fixed scenarios. Um, and, um, you know, they, they are all planned in advance. Um, these trials uh, are, not, are not show. Uh, they're secret trials. Um, and, um, you know, to the extent that Soviet justice could be that, could be just, um, these people get have a lot more opportunities to talk, to explain their side of the story. Um, and, um, and there's nothing show about it, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, in one case, uh, the case of uh, this, this terrible little man who worked for the Ukrainian NKVD at the Republic level, his name was Grabar. Um, he, for instance, um, keeps interrupting. Um, he interrupts all the way through the trial. Um, and when it's time for him to present his last words, they're so lengthy that they have to call an adjournment, a temporary adjournment to, to the trial. Um, so these are very different kinds of trials. Um, and the kinds of descriptions that you get um, of what these perps did to their victims whether it's in interrogation or in the execution chambers, uh, are really quite horrendous. You don't see this kind of information in other sources, except for memoirs, and mostly memoirs that, that we've known about for a long time, mainly by members of the intelligentsia. And so when you were discussing the way that these men, that they were able to actually defend themselves in these trials, something that the people who were being tortured by them didn't necessarily have. Were there any particular instances or any particular men that just stood out in terms of their brutality or their dedication to, you know, the work of pursuing the terror? Well, I think the case, all of the cases that I looked at were horrendous in, in certain ways. Uh, but the case in the town of Uman in Ukraine was particularly uh, frightening. Um, there, <clears throat> the head of the uh, town NKVD, one Borisov, uh, gave very important details on how the terror basically came to Uman from Moscow and from Kiev. And so he helps us understand some of the mechanisms of the terror. Um, but perhaps the most frightening episode is um, the charge against the head of that local prison in Uman, uh, one Abramovich. And Abramovich is charged with looting at the site of execution. What does that mean? Uh, well, one fine day, Borisov, the head of the NKVD, uh, had to entertain the complaints of several wives of prisoners. These wives were in the marketplace and they saw their husband's clothes. 
And of course, this being, you know, very poor population, they recognize these clothes and they immediately go to the NKVD. Why are my husband's clothes uh, at the market? People were not at that time told that their near ones were executed and these men had been executed. And so this led to a whole sort of um, process where Borisov goes back and forth between Kiev and Uman trying to figure out what to do with all of these goods. And he's finally told to burn them. But in the meantime, the chief actor in terms of looting in the execution room is Abramovich. He heads the execution squad, uh, which contains a motley crew of not just NKVD people, uh, but people from the regular police, the militia, as well as NKVD couriers, NKVD chauffeurs, sometimes even firemen. Um, in other words, they didn't have enough people. So lots of people were drawn into these activities. And so Abramovich is, is charged with taking the clothes, taking the best clothes of the executed for himself, and then selling some, giving some to others. Uh, but as the trials go on in Uman, and they repeat the trial three times, um, there start to be uh, accusations against Abramovich that he is stealing gold from the teeth of executed prisoners. Uh, and of course, this is absolutely horrendous. At the same time, it's not clear whether this charge is, is accurate or, uh, or not. I mean, there's, there is more than a whiff of anti-Semitism in this kind of trope of stealing gold, and Abramovich is, is Jewish. Um, on the other hand, he's a very cruel man, and so would, one wouldn't be especially surprised if, in fact, he had been doing this at all. We can't get to the bottom of the, the, the gold theft. Um, but it is clear that in many places, uh, prisoners were fleeced before and after execution. That is truly frightening. And so looking into these different files and having them go essentially line by line about the processes of the terror. So were the men that were, you know, their bodies were eventually looted, did they know that they're going to be executed during well, the interrogation? Is, no, they didn't know. Um, I mean, the interrogations would be over and they'd call a certain group of men for transport uh, or etop. And so these men who were about to be executed uh, believed they were going to be transported to the camps, to the gulag. Um, there was a strict ruling from Moscow that they were not to know their ultimate faith, fate. Uh, fate. And so literally um, until the guns came out, they didn't know they were going to be shot. I, you know, I, I can't say what the penultimate moment of recognition was, uh, but the rules were that they were not to be told. And I should add uh, that after the executions, it was not uncommon for the execution squad then to, uh, at the very place of execution, have breakfast after a long night of work. And they believed that this was their due. They considered their work very hard work. And so uh, it wasn't unusual for them to sit on the same gra grounds that people had been shot at 
uh, usually inside inside the NKVD building, um, and have vodka and appetizers, zakuski. And so do, because a lot of what you're talking about when we start thinking about previous work on the Holocaust, you know, Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men, do these men, do they justify or do they recognize any moral wrong about what they've done to these people? Uh, they don't, um, in most cases. Um, going back to Uman and Borisov, the head of the Uman NKVD, he realized it was wrong. Uh, he realized uh, when and when they were not uh, violating procedure. He, had, he was a long-term NKVD guy. Uh, and of course, it was, you know, if, it, it was in his interest to say precisely that. Um, but, you know, I find, I find his testimony somewhat uh, credible. Um, but mostly uh, people will um, say they, they did what they did because they could not have done otherwise. In other words, if we look at Zaporozhye, uh, there was uh, an operative by the name of Linetsky, and he said, I could not not believe the direct directives coming from Uspensky, the head of the Ukrainian NKVD, uh, which brings in another issue, and that is that these were, in a sense, military men. The NKVD was organized as a military unit, and so, you know, they, they could not uh, not follow orders. Uh, at the same time, it's also clear from testimony, from the last words in the trials of these perpetrators, that most of them wholeheartedly believed in what they were doing. They might not believe, they might not have believed that all of the um, persecuted victims were guilty, but they believed that most of them were. So there is a sense that they, they believed what they were doing. They were ideologized, if we can use that, that word. Um, but at the same time, uh, they made clear that what they did was usually uh, following orders from above. And that's interesting because you talk about earlier in the book, a lot of these men are pretty much built from the ground up in terms of ideology. They're the vis uh, vigenti. And so they're, they're coming from these different backgrounds and, and rising within the NKVD and within the party. So how do you think that lends itself to this clear belief in ideology that makes them these true believers that it will eventually be, you know, the foundation of the great terror? Well, you know, that's a very good question. Um, let me, let me back up and, um, and say that the NKVD itself was subject to permanent purges during the great terror. And in Ukraine, we, we go through three different generations of NKVD operatives because there's purge after purge. Um, and so we only start to see the Witvizhensi at the end. The um, earlier generations, people who worked with earlier heads of the Republican NKVD, Belitsky, um, as well as Leplevsky, these tended to be people who came up through the military or even the Cheka uh, during the Civil War. Um, the Vudvizhensi are generally people who come in at the end with Uspensky, who is the final purge era leader of the Republican um, NKVD, and they tend to be younger. Uh, they tend to be people who were educated in the Soviet system. 
Uh, that is, they have fewer memories of the pre-revolutionary period. Um, so, you know, they were pliable in a way um, and uh, true believers. And Uspensky brings them in um, and he promotes them. So, you know, these are people who are promoted fairly rapidly uh, to high places. Um, and uh, quickly, you know, they found out that they had a great deal of power. Um, and, um, you know, this great deal of power will also put them in a dangerous position after Stalin pulls back on the great on the mass operations of the Great Terror. And so we were talking about how they they rise relatively quickly and a lot of them, a lot of these men are relatively young. And so thinking about the mechanisms of the Great Terror, is there some form of training or a set of rules that these men are following when it goes through arresting and eventually interrogation? Or do they have more more ability to control on the individual level how that works? Well, you know, this is where we get into situational factors and how just the very situation created by the directives on the mass operations, um, you know, enhance the extreme, the extreme violence. Um, many of the people who came in, particularly at the end, were very inexperienced. And then depending on the particular geographic setting, experience could be even less. So let's look, for example, uh, at this village uh, called Skvira uh, in Ukraine. Um, here you had one NKVD person uh, at the district level, at the Rayon level. And his assistants were by and large illiterate policemen, regular policemen, not secret policemen. Um, and so they all claimed that they simply did what he told them to do. They didn't know any better. Um, and they used words like that. And, you know, I'm sure they didn't know any better. Um, but on the other hand, it's no excuse for some of the, let us say, creativity and violence that they displayed. Um, in other cases, like Borisov from Uman, he knew the rules. He was a long-term NKVD uh, operative, so he recognized uh, that things had changed, both in terms of scope and intensity, and also in this push to use torture. Um, the way the terror, the great terror, was taught, so to speak, to, to those of its practitioners was that plenipotentiaries were sent from above. So Borisov uh, remembered in his interrogations how one day uh, a number of large black cars arrived in Uman, and these contained the head of the uh, NKVD for Ukraine, at that time Laplevsky, as well as the assistant head of the all-union NKVD, uh, Frinovsky. Um, and he said that was when everything changed. They came in, they talked in operative meetings to NKVD operators and basically told them how to work with people, how to work with victims, which was largely um, using force, force them to accept uh, their supposed guilt. Um, and, you know, we know that, that there was a ruling on terror, but we've never seen that ruling. Uh, it was only in January 1939 that Stalin refers back to 
uh, permission, supposedly given by the Central Committee, to use what was called euphemistically physical measures of persuasion. And so we know it was sanctioned from above. But I, I don't think that you'll find many, uh, particularly once you leave the, uh, the, the Republican capital, many well-trained NKVD operatives. Um, had they complained, and some did, you know, then they're arrested. So, you know, if, if, if you did know the rules and you wanted to say such and such was a violation of a rule, uh, you'd be risking your, your life. And so the amount of violence that you talk about in the book, it's, it's disturbing, but it's also really interesting because you just talked about how there wasn't that much training per se, and a lot of these men kind of went by, by ear, but you talk about in chapter three, Ivan Stepanovich Drushlak, and he is really ter- a terrifying person when you talk about what he did and how he's kind of put on this pedestal as the best interrogator for, for his section in the NKVD. Could you talk a little bit about Drushlak and what he did and the outcome of his case? Yeah, well, Druslak probably comes closest to being pathological, uh, to being a sadist. And, and some of his colleagues claimed that he was, uh, although we can't necessarily trust what they say because Druslak was a young guy. As you said, he was praised when he uh, used, used his fists. Um, and so he was pushed up rapidly, uh, first within the Kharkov NKVD and then within the Republican uh, NKVD in Kiev. Uh, so there were a great many people uh, who were jealous of him um, and knew why he was so successful. Um, but um, he claimed that in the beginning, uh, officials really. Um, warned him that he better be tough and he better start to use his fists. He better start getting people to sign their interrogations, their false interrogations. Um, And that's why he was so successful. Um, And you see this over and over again. Um, People are praised for using force, um, assuming that they're getting the signatures on the confessions. Um, At the same time, they're under incredible stress. And and I'm not saying this to be sympathetic to these perpetrators, but if we look at, for example, uh, a guy by the name of Petrov, who worked in Uman, his background was regular police. He was a militionaire. He was not NKVD. And he was also semi-literate. And so they put him in this big room, which would be sort of uh, the place where they, they, they first took in uh, their uh, prisoners. And so there was a big table. Not everybody could sit on the t- at the table. And there were, were pencils and paper. And the first thing Petrov would do is he'd say, how many people are guilty? <laughs> and uh, if you said you were guilty, you got off. Um, and you were sent on to an interrogator to be worked up more fully. If you weren't guilty, then Petrov would beat you, basically. Um, And he would keep you standing for days while he continued to sort out these people. 
And so when suddenly it became a crime or violation of socialist illegality to use your fists, he said, okay, and this was after initially denying that he used force. He said, okay, so I used my fists, but how else would you get 100 interrogations through every night? And he was right. Um, given the volume of work, uh, he had no choice. He could either quit or he could get the, the signatures. And to do that, he had to use his fists. So the scope uh, and the pressure coming from above also influences actions locally. And so you talk about this charge of socialist legality. What were these men eventually charged with, these different perpetrators? Well, um, as I said before, there was a continual purge of the NKVD in these years. The earlier purges usually had um, accusations of counter-revolutionary activity or Trotskyism, um, but in this purge of the purgers, as I call it, um, the charge was violation of uh, socialist legality. And what this means, uh, in fact, uh, is a crime of office, sort of like corruption. Um, and so they're charged with violating rules, rules which they, as you uh, uh, suggested, often didn't know, and rules that were not in force for the last two years. And so what happened to these men after they were put on trial? If they were proven guilty, were they treated the same way people were accused of, of the Great Terror, where they're being put into the gulag or they're being shot? Do you see the same sentencing for these men as you do those other victims? Um, not entirely. I mean, really, you know, there were some, some of these perps were executed, but the overall percentage, which, which we don't have the complete numbers on this, was relatively low. So I think there are three or four people in my book who are, who are sentenced to death. Um, in other cases, uh, people are sentenced to time in the gulag. Uh, but by the time the war starts, uh, by 1942 or three, I can't remember precisely, um, the NKVD, the head of the NKVD basically says, you know, we need these people. And so they're released from the gulag and they'll, they're sent to fight on the front. Now, in other cases, and, and this is kind of a mystery uh, to myself and my colleagues, um, the center does not accept the outcome of the trials. And so in a lot of the cases I look at, there are multiple trials. Um, in one case, the third trial occurs during the war in 1942 in evacuation in the Urals. So that gives you a sense of how important um, these trials are to the center. Uh, but the center intervenes um, not only in cases where they say that the um, sentence is too lenient, but in other cases where it's just not clear what's going on. But this means repeated trials for some of the same people. So do your files, do, does your research show what happened to these men after they get out of the gulag or after they finish serving during World War II? Are they assimilated back into society? Are they, you know, exiled? What happens to them? Um, 
we don't have a lot of information and it's not systematic, but according to, you know, individual examples, um, if they survived the war, which of course was a horrendous war that took, uh, you know, almost 30 million lives, if they, if they uh, survived it, they usually go back to where they lived before and they get work. Uh, the one thing that is clear is that none of them are subsequently rehabilitated. And so you see evidence of their fate in letters that they send to the um, bureaucracy of the secret police. Uh, and if, if they're not sending them, their closest relatives are. And basically they're asking uh, that their cases be reinvestigated, reopened, and that their sentences be overturned. And so some of them write in the 50s, seeing themselves as victims of the cult of personality of Stalin, which they were not. Uh, they also write in the 70s when they were hoping that Brezhnev might provide some leniency. And then again in the 90s, uh, we see in Ukraine uh, relatives writing in, asking for, for leniency. And the one thing that is clear is that none of them are rehabilitated. Um, and that means basically that they can't get their pensions from their time working in the NKVD or their relatives can't get their pensions. And in one case, uh, and I, you know, I, don't, I wasn't sure how to react to this when I read it, but um, there was a letter from one of the perps who was executed, a guy by the name of Grobar. He was executed and his grandson wrote in to ask what happened? Where is he? Why don't I know? <laughs> and I knew, you know, as somebody who had just finished reading this enormous case about this really terrible, nasty guy, uh, but his grandson didn't know. Wow, that is fascinating. And so these men, so they kind of are, I guess, ostracized in a way, because they can't claim the rights of being in KVD workers. Do you see them losing their faith in the in the Soviet experiment after this, after they are released or they survive the war, or are they steadfast true believers? Well, you know, I, I really can't answer that. I, I wish I could, because it would open another chapter, a fascinating chapter. Um, I don't know that they're ostracized either. You know, I think some of them came back, got good jobs, and, and that was that. Um, so it's it's very hard to say, um, you know, exactly what their reactions were, you know, whether they were bitter or not. And I, I would dare to say that some of them uh, had a slightly better experience in the gulag than real victims. Um, in that the gulag was often a place where uh, NKVD uh, leaders were sent as punishment. Uh, and, and here we're talking about a whole different group. Uh, there were people from the NKVD uh, who were punished by being put into leadership positions in camps. And uh, it's punishment because these are terrible places to live and be. Uh, but in those cases, they may very well have known or felt solidarity with the perpetrators who were coming in as, as prisoners. That's interesting. Like, and you can put those two together where if you're an NKVD member who's been accused of, you know, excesses or violating socialist legality, you go to the camp and it's possibly run by someone you may have worked with or, or have known. It's possible. And so looking, looking at your work and your thinking, 
How does this book help us understand the victim-perpetrator paradigm in Soviet history? Well, that's a that's a big question and and a hard question. Um, I think you know the easy answer is to say that it's it's uh, a binary that maybe is is too broad and unsubtle. Um, but I would say that really what what my work um, demonstrates so far is more about perpetrators, who they were, uh, what their backgrounds were, um, you know, some sense of the defenses that they offered, whether they were correct or not. Um, and also, you know, a way of understanding this violence. Um, and, you know, trip- typically it was sort of, uh, we, we only looked at the very top of the pyramid of perpetrators. We looked at Stalin. Um, and it is clear that he played a huge role. And when he halted uh, the mass operations, things did come to a halt. Uh, but at the same time, the situational experiences and uh, you know what I've called the creative initiatives of some of these perpetrators indicate that there's more to uh, to this pyramid than simply what's at the top. Um, and I should also say that um, I use this term "great terror," which has come under some um, criticism. Uh, more generally, because people argue, well, you know, how could it be terror if it wasn't public? And what I'm suggesting is that there was a lot that was public. Uh, The terror hit the village very hard, something we weren't aware of before. And you couldn't arrest somebody in a village without other people knowing. Likewise, it took a lot of participation, uh, a lot of people to carry out the mass operations. So its actors were from a wide variety of backgrounds, not just the NKVD. Um, so, you know, it seems to me that um, that the whole issue of perpetrators needs to be sorted out um, uh, more thoroughly. And, you know, I wrote an article in, in Slavic Review a few years back, which looked more generally at this question of the perpetrator. Uh, And there I suggested it was a very slippery concept. Uh, But once I got an empirical base, the NKVD, it was less slippery because it's clear these guys are perpetrators. Um, I should also say, going back to Browning, um, you know, they're they're not ordinary men. And that's not because they're sadists, like perhaps Bruce Locke was, uh, but it's because you know, they're in a military organization. They're people who, you know, strongly believe not only in the ideology of the state, but in the culture of the Chekhov, the NKVD. So I don't see them as ordinary people. Interesting. And so it seems like your work kind of helps us look at this other side of everyday Stalinism this idea where we just, we do look at Stalin or we look at Khrushchev or we look at the victims who are able to write down their memories, but your work gives us this whole other viewpoint of the people who were enacting the terror. 
Well, I think, you know, for me, the big question has always been, you know, why? Mm-hmm. Why did people go along with this? Um, and that's a very big question. And some of the, the new studies on Soviet subjectivity go a long way to explaining that. Um, but I also wanted to know, you know, how people could could do the things that they do in cases when they're directly involved with collectivization or with the great terror, um, how do you understand the actual um, uh, direct agents of repression? And I don't know that I, I have an answer to that. I have a series of possible, possible answers. Um, but I think looking at these perpetrators, you can then see beyond into how the great terror developed, how it operated, how it worked. Um, and I don't think we've, we've known this. And so another interesting aspect of your book, you focus on Ukraine because those are the sources that are available, but you also talk about how Ukraine was very special in this case in terms of the NKVD members, but also in the way the terror worked within Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I I would say that most of the types of activities we see um, in this book, you could probably see elsewhere in the Soviet Union. But Ukraine was considered, uh, perceived to be especially dangerous from Stalin's point of view. Not only was it an area that had been hard to control during the Civil War, uh, an area where, you know, Ukrainians uh, who wanted independence played a very strong role. Um, but it was an area with a lot of different uh, ethnicities. You know, there were there were Germans, there were Poles, there were Russians, there were Ukrainians, there were Jews. And all of this uh, made it seem even more dangerous from the point of view of the leadership. Um, so Germans and Poles were seen as what Terry Martin calls diaspora nationalities. Uh, Stalin considered that they had dual loyalties. And so when the great terror, the mass operations get sparked again in Ukraine in January, February of 1938, they're particularly anxious to purge defense factories of anybody who has what's considered a national background. Now, mind you, these are not Poles and Germans. These are Soviet citizens whose families in many cases, in many cases had been there for a century. Um, but now they're considered diaspora. They're considered people of dual, dual um, loyalties. And so they need to be isolated or destroyed. Uh, and in fact, if you look at say the Polish operation, uh, the death rates are very high. Um, in that, uh, the per- percentage of arrests, uh, deaths, execution sentences to arrests are very, very high. Um, so Ukraine as a border area and, and a multi-ethnic area was seen as particularly dangerous. So Lynn, we've taken up a bit of your time today. And so my final question for you is, what are you working on now? Well, now I'm working with this larger team of Russian, Ukrainian, German scholars, and um, we just published an anthology of articles looking at the different regions of Ukraine during the terror. 
uh, and that's in Russian. Uh, it's called Chekisti Naskamya Podsudimik. And we're bringing out four volumes of documents on these perpetrators. So the first volume is out, and that contains the stenographic reports of some of the NKVD Communist Party meetings I referred to. Um, the second volume, which will have two books, uh, is dedicated to the trials. And then the fourth, sorry, the third volume um, is on ego documents. So we look not only at the so-called last words of the perpetrators before they're sentenced, we look at their autobiographical statements, we look at their petitions for clemency, we look at letters that they wrote. Um, and um, you know, our greater aim is to get this material into the public domain. Uh, this is something I learned in the 1990s. I worked with Viktor Petrovich Danilov on uh, a big document project called The Tragedy of the Soviet Countryside. And in the 90s, of course, everything was possible. And so, you know, I, I thought times had changed. And I remember him saying, we need to do this to keep these in the public domain. And I thought, well, come on, everything's fine now. Well, now, of course, I realize this is not the case. And so I, I feel like I'm continuing Danielov's work in some ways, uh, perhaps not at, at, at the level of quality of Danielov, but trying to get these documents into the public domain so they cannot be closed up again. And that's incredibly pertinent right now, considering the issues scholars are having getting access to some of the archival material. That's right. That's right. And especially given that the FSB, former KGB archives in Moscow, are closed to us. Uh, and the situation between Russia and Ukraine remains unstable. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for spending time with us and telling the audience about your really outstanding new book and that'll be it well thank you so very much i really appreciate it